Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Before we get into today's story, I wanted to read a listener letter that I got a few weeks ago because I think it's very interesting and relevant to something I talked about a few episodes ago. So here we go. Dear Dr. H., I'm a long-time listener of your podcast and really appreciate the profound and moving information you provide there. I wanted to share a recent psychiatric experience I had with you, since I suspect it will soon be an issue faced by many people, but I haven't heard all that much said or written about it yet. My story is that I started using semaglutide, I think that's how you pronounce it, or Wagovi, which is a GLP-1 agonist. I started using that for weight loss last summer, and it triggered some intense bouts of suicidality in me, in such a cyclical way that I began to realize that I'm probably on the bipolar spectrum. I'm 54 now and have had episodes of depression and long periods of dysthymia since adolescence. This summer, I started taking Wagovi because my BMI was around 28 and I had high cholesterol. While I started losing weight immediately, I also had intense intermittent fatigue. And after a couple weeks, I started noticing very depressed mood, although it would only last for a portion of each day. Started taking the second lowest dose, and then I began having suicidal ideation. I would feel intensely depressed and strongly suicidal many days of the week. But bizarrely, these feelings would usually last for about four hours, and something would happen, and I'd switch back to feeling pretty normal. Because the mood effects were so disturbing, I decided to stop taking Wagovi, although I was sad because it's so effective for weight loss. It's now been about three weeks since my last shot, and the suicidal thoughts have completely gone away. However, I still feel very odd. My baseline mood is pretty normal, but I find myself bursting into tears at the slightest stressor or sad discussion. And worse than that, my brain is definitely not functioning normally. My thoughts seem slower. I really can't do my work. I'm I'm an economist for the federal government, and I can't really do anything that requires executive functioning, such as household planning. I feel overwhelmed instantly. I feel like I'm in some sort of bipolar spectrum mixed state. And then she goes on to say, you've mentioned on your podcast in the past that GLP-1 agonists might be a helpful adjunct for psychiatric patients who gain weight on antipsychotics. I just have a strong feeling that, unless I'm an incredibly rare case, a large number of people might start experiencing severe aggravation of underlying mood disorders as GLP-1 medications continue to explode in popularity. Just thought I'd share this experience with you because you've been such a source of excellent psychiatric information to me, and I thought you might be interested in this experience. So, yes, thank you very much for this letter. You know, as many of you have heard on the podcast, I'm definitely not someone to prescribe brand name meds if I can help it, because I really want meds to be on the market for years and have many, many people try them before I, you know, experiment with them with my patients. But I have used the GLP-1 agonist a few times. I think I've started like six or seven people on those. And I know there's more stuff percolating up in the literature and the popular press about psychiatric side effects. So uh, I would be really curious if any listeners know of anyone who's been taking the GLP-1 agonist who've had serious psychiatric stuff, just send me an email because I'd be very curious about that. Um, And if I get any interesting information from all of you, I'll let you know. All right, let's transition to talk about love. I'm so delighted to share today's episode with all of you. This is a conversation about love, attachment, therapy, psychedelics, and healing with Dr. Adele LaFrance, a Colorado-based psychologist, the co-founder of Emotion-Focused Family Therapy, and most recently, the principal investigator of a fascinating study called The Love Project. 
Adele and I delve deeply into the role of love and therapy, both in the traditional therapeutic relationship and also in the psychedelic space. And I think you're in for a real treat. So we are here to talk about love. Hmm. One of my favorite topics. Not something I've explored on the podcast. And I drove down to Denver today, and I'm sitting with Adele of France in her house hmm. with her little dog, Rosie. And we're recording in the living room. And Adele, thanks for opening up the space. Oh my gosh. Yeah, thank you so much for your interest in this topic. Yeah. I, um, a friend of mine, Rachel Workman, months ago said, you ha- have you ever heard Adele speak? Have you ever gone to a presentation of hers? I said, no. And then I came down a couple months ago and heard you talk here in Denver. And that's when I knew, like, okay, you and I have to sit down and record something. Oh, well, thank you. And as I was looking through your website, I thought there's so many things we could talk about because you have a vast array of interests. But most recently, it looks like you're focused on love. Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. With the Love Project. And we'll talk about that in a minute. You know, I've always had the sense that research is me-search. And um, you're doing the Love Project. So I'm wondering, why love? Why because you you had just told me before we started recording, you're self-funding this. Like It's not like you have some big, like you're doing this. Yeah, clip. well, we've been lucky enough to get a couple of donations in the last uh, six to eight months. But otherwise, we're all volunteering our time. And yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely a labor of love. Mm. <laughs> yes. So why love? Well, I mean, there are all kinds of unconscious drivers <laughs> as well as conscious ones. I think... The, one, the unconscious drivers that have been um, more in my awareness these days has been like, well, where I grew up. You know, I grew up in a, a little village in northern Ontario, 4,000 people, and uh, we're quite isolated, you know, about four hours away from a major city. And I actually just came home from there, spent a little less than a week there a couple of weeks ago, and I was re- just remembering, you know, what it was like to be a child there, to be a teenager there. And there was not a lot of love, Mm. you know, it was a, I guess, blue collar and people struggled, people suffered uh, with all kinds of difficulties. And for whatever reason, the culture in our little village was not one rooted in love. And so there was a lot of like criticism or guilt or expectations or sarcasm. Like you had to be tough to live there, to grow up there. And it wasn't until I left that I realized how, I don't want to say tough I'd become, but how maybe calloused Mm -hmm. I'd become now, not to say that there was no love, of course. I, I, I knew my parents loved me. I knew that um, I was, for the most part, safe in my community. But verbal expressions of love warm. were... Yeah, warm. Like, mm-hmm. verbal, physical expressions of love were rare. You know, they were infrequent. And it almost seemed like we were all a little paralyzed. Like, we loved each other, but somehow, like, we couldn't show it to one another. So I kind of was reflecting on the focus of my career the last 15 years. Like I developed a treatment model to help families heal together. And really the foundation of it is a return to love in words and action. And then a couple years ago... That was your repetition compulsion. <laughs> like 
if maybe if I can develop oh, this yeah. family model, then I can heal my, right. my family. Right. Yeah. And like help other people, mm-hmm. you know, not have to go through the same. And I realized that like, okay, we were not alone in our little village. And then a couple of years ago, I had a ceremony where it was all about love and it was with ayahuasca and I had just gotten divorced for a second time, you know, and so I wasn't feeling super good about my capacity to love, you know, be loved, navigate that terrain. And I have this ceremony all about love. And one of the major takeaways was, I don't know, it was almost like I was given some instructions, like, this would be good for you. And this would be good for the world. Maybe, you know, I don't know if that sounds a little too, <laughs> I don't know, egoic or something, but to, to bring the conversation about love into the uh, foreground, especially when it comes to psychotherapy and healthcare and through the vehicle of science and research. And so I thought, okay, well, that's a clear directive. Don't know how the heck I'm going to do that. And when you say directive, you mean from from the medicine, from the it, experience. It felt that way. Yeah, Maybe it was yeah. from myself, you mm-hmm. know, but it did feel like it was from the medicine. And yeah, so somehow I was supposed to help people talk about love in the context of conventional healing spaces and not just with psychedelics, like general psychotherapy, general uh, healthcare. And so, yeah, I was lucky enough to meet up with colleagues and friends who also had that same passion for talking about love more explicitly as a healing energy. And so we came together and just started. And thankfully, we got a lot of help from folks from different um, research institutions that are, you know, widely recognized in the psychedelic space. They shared with us the surveys that they'd completed. And slowly but surely, we built a survey instrument, got ethics approval, and started to ask people questions about love. Mm-hmm. And thus the, and thus the love project. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going back there a minute, do you think your decision to become a psychologist, like was that even sort of scaffolded by this conscious or unconscious interest in love and connection and or do you think that actually yeah I, I mean listen at that time it was not conscious but looking back I craved connection you know my childhood was on the backdrop of some pretty profound loneliness you know so when I think about it as a psychologist you know with psychodynamic theories I'm like well of course that makes sense because it took a long time for me to heal that deep wound of loneliness that I carried inside of me wherever I went. to the love project so the love project is focused on uh, 
the role of love in psychedelic assisted therapy. Is that correct? Well, it's actually... Or just psychedelics in general? or Broader than that, hmm. um, one of our goals is to define love. And we're asking people who've had profound experiences of love under the effect of a psychedelic to help teach us because those experiences are um, so significant. They're easy to recall. Um, they're easy to describe. And so we're actually hoping that on the basis of people's psychedelic experiences of love, we can start to unravel the mystery mm. of this energy, you know, that we call love, but that many of us are confused by. So that's one of the hopes for this study. The other hope is to understand how these profound experiences of love have helped people to heal and grow. And I don't think that we understand that sufficiently as a field. And I think there's so much opportunity for us to learn again from these profound experiences of love in terms of what their potential are to help people heal psychologically, spiritually, but also from physical health issues. And so then the other piece was to ask people like, what do you think about making love more explicit in psychotherapy? What do you think about making love explicit more in healthcare? What do you think the barriers are? What do you think we need to do as a culture to approach a place where we can feel more comfortable, you know, doing so? Because let's face it, many people in healthcare, many people in psychotherapy have been hurt in the name of love. Mm -hmm. And so there is a sketchy, dark history of people using what they call love to harm. So we have some rehab to do. Yeah, that's true. Do you have a working definition of love right now? Or is that still in flux? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> Someone asked me that recently. They're like, oh, because of this, you should know. I'm like, are you kidding? If anything, I know less than what I knew before. I have, I have thoughts. I have ideas. I have feelings about what love is and what love does. But I can't say that I'm there yet in terms of feeling confident about a definition. Mm-hmm. It seems like the word love is so expansive that it can kind of get in the way. Like I was, I've talked about this on the podcast, but this idea that, you know, I think the best coaches love their athletes. Yeah. And I think the best teachers love their students. Maybe not every student, but, you know, yeah. I think the best therapists love many of their patients. And uh, I've had that experience sitting with people where I just feel such powerful love. And I wanted to say, I love you. Yes. <laughs> but because of all the harms that have been caused, because I think of the romantic, physical mm-hmm. component, mm-hmm. because of the power differential, like the, the L word is something in the therapy space you have to be so careful about using. But mm-hmm. it's almost like we need another word <laughs> for that. Well, or we need to look at what the blocks are, what the barriers are, what the unhealed wounds are and, and focus on that, you know, so that we can use the word love. I think about Carl Rogers, Mm -hmm. unconditional positive regard. I mean, he was already such a maverick bringing that concept into the space at a time where psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, cognitive or behavioral interventions were front and center. And he comes up and talks about unconditional positive regard 
as a healing force. I mean, what was he talking about? He was talking about love. There's no question in my mind, you know, and he started to define it and it took it like it took off and people are now interested in like, okay, what are the conditions that create a space for someone to heal and grow unconditional positive regard? What does that look like? What does that look like in action? You know? And so now I'm feeling like, okay, the jig is up. Like we had to use the term unconditional positive regard for however many years. Now can we evolve together, you know, in a way that feels safe, that feels ethical, that feels respectful and talk about love. Mm -hmm. When you've worked with folks, you know, in the therapy context or medicine context, I mean, can you, how have you expressed your love? I mean, are there words or actions or, um, well, it was interesting because in the early stages of my career, I didn't. I really was um, somehow convinced that the we needed to be really neutral, you know, and that that would be really important. Except I had this epiphany about a year ago that neutrality is only important if you're doing psychoanalytic psychotherapy where transference is the primary mode of, you know, moving the therapy forward. Of course, you need to be a blank slate in that situation so that, that, that your client can project onto you, right? And then you can help them with that. But that's not what I was doing. I was not engaging people in psychoanalytic psychotherapy. And so the idea that I should be neutral or a blank slate was really a misguided. It, it was misplaced, and I remember this huge controversy in grad school about whether or not you could hug your clients, if that was like a boundary violation. And I was more conservative in terms of like physical contact with clients. And so I was definitely on the side of like, no, like that's not something that I feel comfortable doing. And now, I mean, come on. <laughs> like, you're a hugger. I'm a hugger. <laughs> it's like what I needed to do was thaw. Thaw the blocks inside of me that I, you know, adopted through intergenerational pain. And now I'm like, what do you mean, hugs? I'm not dangerous. This space is not dangerous. I'm clear about who I am in this relationship and who I'm not. And that can be made clear for the other person. Like, I'm totally okay mm. with hugs. Mm. And so I do use the L word, but I use it cautiously because just because I feel more comfortable with it now doesn't mean that the people that I'm working with feel comfortable mm. with it, you know? So I have learned that it's probably not a good idea to be a super zealot about it, you know, because then that's not respecting where the other person's at. But I do use the word love, you know, and I might say like, oh, I have a lot of love in my heart for you, you know, something of that nature to give it a bit of mm -hmm. distance. But yeah, now I, I, I genuinely celebrate, you know, explicitly. Mm -hmm. um, I've definitely told when people we have that moments. I'm feeling parental love. Oh, like I'm feeling yeah. a lot. I'm, I'm feeling a lot of, yeah, love in my heart, love in my body. It's a, it's a parental kind of love. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think for me, I would say it's more sibling love, hmm. you know, or like not even sibling love, just like fellow human love. That's the kind of love that uh, seems to be 
generating, you know, more mm-hmm. often than not for me in those healing spaces. Mm-hmm. Well, if I might just say, I wanted to jump in, but not interrupt you. When you were talking about transference, I would respectfully disagree a little bit about transference and that I think transference is so powerful mm-hmm. that I think... Uh, if you were my therapist and you were just being genuinely you, I think I would have transference all over you. Right, right. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Even, even if you were, hugged me and you said kind. It would still happen. It would still happen. Yeah, yeah. no, fair point. It's, it's powerful, yeah. have you learned so far in the love project so i know that you are collecting survey responses and uh listeners heads up i did uh adele survey and it probably took 20 25 minutes it was a really interesting survey to take it was uh it was actually fascinating so one of the data points you have adele is mine oh of, wow. a, of a psychedelic experience of love that was totally life-changing um but i have to say i i have so many it was hard to pick one. Mm-hmm. You know, I think your survey said something like, choose a time when you most felt love mm-hmm. or you were most filled with love. And, and I, I was thinking, well, would that be like love towards my partner, towards the natural world, mm-hmm. towards the universe, towards my cat, towards you know, like, right. you know, there's been, I've had that a lot of times. It's a beautiful problem to have. It is a beautiful problem mm-hmm. to have. Yeah. But have you looked at, um, where are you now in the data collection? Oh, let me put one more plug. Listeners, if you, if you have a few minutes, go to the Love Project, mm-hmm. Adele's project, and fill out the survey. And I think you could help her get data. But also, I think it would be a very interesting experience for each of you. Yeah, we really hope that actually going through the survey ends up being integrative. And mm-hmm. so thank you so much for that. Yeah, so we looked at some of the data we presented at the MAPS conference a couple months ago, some preliminaries. And I'll just I'll just highlight two of the findings that I found most promising, you know, for the human race period, actually. And one was we asked people to describe their most profound experience of love, and they could have had multiple experiences of love, you know, in, in different directions, as you noted. And then we asked them which were the most profound. And the number one response was the experience of love for others. Oh, others like all. Yeah. And and then we asked them, okay, well, what does others mean? And the most frequently endorsed response was all beings. Wow. Yeah. And I thought, wow, that is so beautiful, Mm -hmm. so encouraging, so hopeful. And then the next um, the next position was current or former partner, and then parents. And I thought, okay, well. If I were to support people to set intentions in psychedelic assisted therapy, or if I were to support people in the context of psychotherapy or healthcare, how might I be guided by this finding that the most profound experiences of love had to do with the recognition that all beings are worthy of love 
you know, followed by then the people who are closest to us. I just thought that was really, really yeah. so beautiful. Was that substance dependent at all? Did you, because one of the things that you I remember on the survey was, you know, talked about what substance or substances mm-hmm. um, had you taken. And um, so I'm wondering, you know, in that sort of number one ranking love towards right. all others versus, you know. Yeah, we haven't parents. looked at it at that level yet, but. Of the substances reported, the most frequently used substance was psilocybin. Mm. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to look at it at that finer grain level, but it was pretty cool. And then the, I guess the other finding that I was really moved by was people's responses to the question, is it important to support the cultivation of love in the context of psychedelic-assisted therapy, in the context of psychotherapy without psychedelics, and in the context of medicine and healthcare? And the lowest number was 80% people who either agreed or strongly agreed that it would be a good idea to support the cultivation of love in any one of those healing contexts. Mm. So that was really, really cool too. Yeah. I I find that so interesting that, you know, if you just think of psychedelics and love, and again, there's controversy, what substances are psychedelics and what aren't, but that uh, I think many people might think, oh, MDMA is going to lead that. Right. You know, because like, oh, you know, the empathy, the, the love, love, drug. love drug, but no psilocybin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I wonder if that could be in part because, and again, this sort of goes with the love for others that there's something about psilocybin that is so deeply connecting to all, all things. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's also true for ayahuasca, other classic psychedelics, um, but hey, good news. It is you good know? news. That like, there seems to be this foundational theme related to these consciousness altering substances. And so what does that mean when our consciousness is altered? Hmm. That it's like, we remember, we remember that love is, you know, and then finish that sentence. Love is everything. Love is healing. Love is powerful. Love is beautiful. Love is mystery. Love is God. On, On the downside though, and we asked them about, you know, what barriers they felt were, most significant in terms of being able to get there. Number one was stigma and love, you know, being considered as unscientific, which if you look at the literature in psychedelic psychotherapy or even um, psychedelic healing paradigms, period, you don't often find that word. Mm -hmm. And yet anecdotally people talk about these profound experiences all the time like in in michael pollan's book you know he talks about love being everything and also feeling a little silly about saying that you know so it was like such a good demonstration that like it's it's not everything in the context of psychedelic experiences but it's a really really significant theme which is vastly ignored um in the scientific literature and so that of course is very curious to me And then the other two barriers that were reported were around the lack of experience or training in facilitating love's healing uh, potential and related to that, the fear of boundary violations. And so I was like, oh, well, that's actually kind of cool because those are very loving concerns, you know, like we don't want to hurt people and we don't want to confuse people. We want to make sure that if we're using this really potent, powerful energy, that we're doing so in a way that is most likely to yield positive outcomes. Mm -hmm. 
curious, in your experiences with ayahuasca or other medicines, what have you experienced, you know, as a participant in this journey or in terms of maybe experiences that really catalyzed, supported, um, featured love as a central oh. character versus maybe some that did not uh, and that that was... Well, I mean, I may get tearful talking about this part, but my mom has suffered um, from cancer throughout my life. She's had four different types of cancers starting from when I was 14 years old up until just 18 months ago. And I've had many ceremonies about the depth of my love for her, but also the depth of her love for me, whether or not we were always able to show it to one another, you know? And a mother's love is so, so special, so beautiful, so healing. And I was, I've just been so grateful that because of those psychedelic experiences... I could touch in to that love so fully, you know, um, you know, we, we, we don't know how much time any of us have left, you know, as part of this experience, but I am so glad that despite some of the difficulties that we experienced growing, like when I was growing up, that we have been able to share with each other the depth of that love, you know, like in words, not just in actions, um, in a very direct ways. And so that's been one of my greatest gifts is that when my mom passes or if I pass before her, you know, both of us will know mm-hmm. and we'll know it in a cellular way. So that's, I mean, it's just been so huge. And so I, I'm always really motivated to help people to get to that place, no matter what's happened in their relationship with their mother or their father or other adult influences, influencers, or even former partners, because that return to source, that return to that knowing is just like so incredibly healing. I have, I walk the world with much more peace because of it. Have you, in any of your ceremonies or medicinal work ever, or have you had a positive experience of love from another you know, therapist or healer or someone oh or there? Yes. I wonder if you might say like what what that was like for oh. you to, to be on the receiving end of that. Oh my gosh! Again, like I'm start crying because <laughs> it was so amazing. So I have a history of sexual assault. Um, I was raped when I was 16 years old. And then uh, a f- about five years later, another attempt, I uh, was drugged and and it didn't go well for me. And so that was in addition to growing up as a girl, as a woman in uh, where I grew up, you know, where there was still a lot of sexism and um, inappropriate behaviors as part of the, what was normal. And so I had, I, I, I was engaged in a psychedelic therapy session and the, the therapist was male and I wondered, huh, how is this going to go? You know? And I was so scared 
And was he, it one-on-one? It was one-on-one, mm-hmm. yeah. And he was holding my hand and he was looking at me and I could see in his eyes that he loved me and I could feel the love in the space between us. And it was the universal kind of love, like the fellow human kind of love. But it took me quite a while to be able to disentangle my fear of what other kind of love or lust it could be. And he was so steady in his beingness. And he was so clear. And so I wouldn't even say boundaried. He didn't need to be boundaried because it was just so clear. Mm -hmm. It was it was that universal love. And I asked, I'd had to ask him like, do you have any sexual feelings or urges, you know? And he, and he said, no. And I was able to, you actually asked him that. I absolutely did. And I had to, and I was able to feel in the space between us that he was telling the truth. And it was so, so healing. And the last kind of, uh, reveal from that experience was up until that day, every man was every man who'd ever hurt me. Mm. And he helped me to disentangle that. And so, I mean, I'm so grateful. Yeah. I had a, a much clearer connection to my instincts around who I could trust. Which is a huge deal, right? It's for kind of the hugest, right? Trust, you, you know? know, trust, mistrust. That's stage stage one uh-huh. of development. Yeah, and it's like okay, like not every man is going to hurt me, not every man can hurt me, and it was like being given access to um, my compass again, or at least uh, recalibrating it in a way. Mm-hmm. What a beautiful example of how the thing, the entity that traumatized you, the men, mm-hmm. by having a, a man stand in who's so different. Because, mm-hmm. you, know, so, you know, so many trauma therapists are women. And, and, you know, often when I refer to trauma therapists, I think, okay, only women, because mm-hmm. so many people that have been traumatized are women traumatized by men. But yet in this, this work, like, having a solo man who, as you said, wasn't just boundary, but was just so solid in his yeah, safety. Totally clear. Yeah. And I was able to feel it, you know, and likewise, when I healed from the rape, it was one-on-one with a male shaman in Peru, <laughs> you know, not how I expected to heal from that, but wow, that was, that was so profound. It Did was, you feel comfortable saying like what, what that healing, or I know it's so hard to put into words, but what was the healing sauce of that? Yeah. I mean, he had, um, he had given me some advice earlier in that week and he talked about the need for forgiveness, you know, but not just the kind of forgiveness that we, or that I was accustomed to hearing about, like forgiving myself or forgiving him. But he said, no, you have to forgive the, the sin energy of the world. And it was, uh, I mean, I don't usually use the word sin, you know, mm-hmm. but it was like, basically you have to forgive the dark energy the of dark the world forces. that traverses through people, you know? And I thought, okay, I'm not quite sure I understand <laughs> that, but okay, fine. And then that night, um, it was a private ceremony. I, uh, I was able to unlock 
the self-forgiveness. I was really upset with myself that I didn't fight harder and that I didn't fight longer. And the medicine showed me very, very clearly that I fought as long and as hard as I um, could, but then my instincts took over and were like, no, 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 you like you're outmatched. It's not going to go well if you keep fighting, you know? So I immediately had this like deep sense of self-understanding, self-compassion, self-love, like, oh my gosh. Okay. Yes. And then I moved on to feeling like seeing him, you know, and seeing his pain and understanding understanding him as a fellow human being who had been broken in some ways, you know, in his earlier life. And, and then it came to forgiving the energy. And I just, I, I don't know, it was the weirdest thing. It had something to do with his grandfather who'd been in a war and how this like real terrible energy moved through his lineage. And he was dumping it in a way, mm-hmm. you know, and to me, if that like, mm-hmm. I, it's like crazy to think about. And so I, that's when I understood what the shaman meant. He's like, Oh, I have to transmute this energy. I have to stop it, you know, from hurting other people. And so I, I made myself into this like being of love mm-hmm. And I could just see it like roll up my body, roll up my head and like out into the universe kind of thing, but transmuted, transformed, you know? And so I was like, that was the final piece for me. I needed to forgive myself. I needed to forgive him. And then I needed to forgive the energy that passed through his lineage and found me. And I'm like, well, that energy is not going to hurt anyone else any longer Surely not, you know, this being. <laughs> uh, in fact, I came home and I hadn't spoken to that person in, I don't know, 20 plus years. And I sent them a message and I let them know about ayahuasca as a healing tool. And I didn't know what was happening in their lives, you know. Um, but I just said, like, if, if you find yourself in a state of suffering, this might be something that you're interested in looking into. Talk about not passing down the dark energy. You, you like turn that into light. <laughs> really, like yeah. you've just like shot a beam of just love back to him. Like, hey, I mean, not loves. I mean, no, love, it was love. It was, it was, it was love. Yeah. I mean, it was love. It was love. And I mean, I. It took me a long time to get there. When I it wasn't just the one ceremony, you know. I needed to go through the rage you know, of that, of the violation, the injustice. I needed to, you know, unpack the shame, the fear that it left me with, you know, so I just don't want your listeners to think that it was like, oh, just really so easy to forgive myself, forgive him, forgive the energy. And here we are supporting each other to get healing. Like it was not like that. It was trench work and it was gnarly. I don't wish it upon anybody. But I also feel compelled to share the story of hope because I do not feel burdened by it any longer. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mm-hmm. 
change gears and come back to think, maybe talk a little more theoretically and practically about how you think about love kind of in the psychedelic space versus in the conventional Mm -hmm. therapy space. I think that people get it more in the psychedelic space. Um, There's a much clearer understanding of the role of love as a healing technology, as a healing energy. My sense is that in conventional psychotherapy, there's a lot of fear that is crowding the capacity to uh, integrate this concept, you know, of love as a, as a healing tool. And the therapist fear or the client patient fear? I think just everybody, everybody's mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, policymakers fears, administrators fears, all of it. And I would, I would say that it's probably even more significant in the context of healthcare. Um, I have a feeling that if I surveyed 200 physicians and I asked them about the role of love and healing in the context of patient consultations, you know, that um, there would be a significant degree of discomfort mm-hmm. of, of not knowing, you know, maybe even what that looks like or what that means. So I think that we're, I think the psychedelic, the field of psychedelics will have a lot to offer, have a lot to share with the field of conventional psychotherapy and healthcare. But I, I also think we need to just be really careful that we're doing it in a way that's palatable, manageable, digestible, and in a way that respects the fears that exist. They're not unfounded. They may be amplified, but they are not unfounded. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, Adele, to think about love in, in the therapy room. And, you know, one thing I think about when I get to know new patients, but the, the word, I, the way I've thought about it, although now I'm going to think of it more about love, I've often thought as I sit with people, I think, you know, I think that conventional parlance is, are we a good fit? Can mm-hmm. we connect? But I think like, can I find a little place in my heart for you? Yes. Yeah. And I've, I've often thought that. And most, usually, yes. I mean, occasionally I'll sit with someone and I think, mm, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I can find, for whatever reason, my own counter-transference. Of course. But, um, but I, it's so interesting, again, to use the L word now and think like, really, I think what I'm asking myself is, can yeah can i like grow my heart a little bit and, mm-hmm. and put you in there absolutely the therapy model that i developed involves a lot of work with parents of children across the age span who are struggling with mental health issues and wow you want to strengthen your capacity for love try this work because in the past i was highly triggered by parents who were not supporting their kids you know or criticizing them or blaming them And what you described, like, huh, can I, can I not? When I was feeling like, ooh, I don't know if I can, that would then become the focus of my personal healing work. Like, okay, what's that about? What's that about from my lived experience or my my lineage that I'm having a hard time with this? And then capacity grows, you know? And it's to the point now where... mm, I don't have those experiences as often, you know, supporting parents. Like I just have so much love in my heart for them. It's such a difficult job, especially now that we are raising children in an isolation from one another. But it was a, it was a 10 year process for me to remove barriers from my heart so that more 
people could fit in. And I think that the way you described it is how I would encourage all therapists of all types to consider that process. Like, can I, can I not? And what you said was so amazing because you're like, what is it about me? Mm-hmm. Not what is it about them? And that's where we can get confused. That's the, in my opinion, that is the right procedure. Yeah. If I'm not able to open it up, that's okay. I'm normal. I'm human. I have limitations. But what is it about me that I can unlock within myself so that I can grow my capacity, not just for my clients, but in my life, you know? So I think it's like, it's a fun little game that mm-hmm. we play. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I had an experience um, a couple months ago where I was doing an eval new patient and uh, I have a psychiatric nurse practitioner who's rotating with me. And at the end of this session, as we were at a debriefing, I, I said to her, I said, you know, I don't think I can work with this person. I'm not feeling it. I think now in the, in the language we're using, like there's no part of my heart I think I could open up to this mm-hmm. person. And she said, oh, I like the person. This person was just very sad. And I said, maybe. I said, but and I'll, I'll own it. I said, I think it's very interesting that you experienced this patient very differently. I said, but for me, for probably a complicated set of reasons that I may or may not be able to articulate. Like I can't, I can't can't open my heart Mm -hmm. to this person. And Mm -hmm. if I can't, I've just realized more and more in the kind of work that we do, like if you can't find some affection slash caring slash love, Mm -hmm. if you can't open a little bit of your heart, it's not going to work or it's going to be a greatly diminished therapy. Yeah, no, I completely agree for sure. I think it's a responsible thing to do, you know, to acknowledge one's limitations so that you can give your client the best possible conditions for flourishing. A lot of therapists listen to this. And I wonder if you have some thoughts, like therapists who are listening, thinking like, hmm, how could I incorporate more love into treatment? How could I open my heart a little bit? How could I sort of make, uh, call out the elephant in the room? Yeah. How could I make this more explicit? How could, mm-hmm. how could I actually bring more love into treatment? Well, you know, what I'm envisioning is that they say, hey, I listened to this podcast last week on love and love and healing spaces. And I wondered if we could talk about it, mm-hmm. the role of love in your life, the role of love in this work, and just start there as a conversation. Oh, I love that. Yeah. In fact, I think that's such a perfect place to wrap up. <laughs> um, this has been so fun to talk to you. And there's so many other areas that I'd love to explore. But I wanted to keep this just deeply focused on love because mm-hmm. I've just been thinking a lot about love and therapy and treatment and healing and, and love as, a, as one of the special sauces in, the, in yeah. the cocktail of healing. I love that. The special sauce in the cocktail of healing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Adele. My absolute pleasure. Thank you. As always, you can reach Chris and me through my website, craigheacockmd.com. We'd love to hear your comments, your questions, and story ideas. Each of you listeners have people in your lives who might benefit from these stories. So take a moment right now and share this episode. On Apple Podcasts, you click on the three horizontal dots in the upper right-hand corner of the episode screen. And on Spotify, you click on the three horizontal dots in the middle of the episode screen. 
This is how you share an episode. So thanks so much. We'll be back in two weeks. Running on empty, drifting through life, half asleep. Can't you help me? Won't you leave? Wake me up, love. Wrap me up, love. Lift us up, love. Make us one, love. Take my hand, love. Have my heart, love. Lift us up, love. Make us one, love. Why?